Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. I always laugh when I think of the embroidered pillow my cousin has on her bed that reads, Mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my mother after all. (laughs) Well, this past summer, AARP released the findings of its 2021 Mirror Mirror study based on data collected from almost 4,900 women ages 18 to 74. Uh, The data was collected in the last two months of 2020. And the survey designed by ARP Research and conducted by the National Opinion Research Center, known as NORC, which I referenced before, was conducted both online and by phone in English and in Spanish. And results reflect responses from women from a variety of ethnic backgrounds, including Asian. Now, the emphasis of this study was on women's appearance and body image, but While how we look as we age is something with which probably most of us do deal, to me, self-image is so much more than that. I love to travel and I love to learn how women in uh, various uh, cultures and of various ethnicities view themselves, both personally and within their society's context, and also in America. In fact, I recently returned from a month in the Arabian Gulf countries where I had a lot of conversations with women about their lives. So I was delighted when ARP put me in touch with Dr. D.J. Ida. She's based in Denver, Colorado, and she's the founding executive director of the National Asian American Pacific Islander Mental Health Association. And she was involved in analyzing the results of the ARP Mirror Mirror study. We talked extensively about the challenges for older Asian American women and how those challenges are influenced by the generations that precede them. If you are somebody who was born in the States, the question becomes, what is it to be Japanese American? What is it to be Asian American? Because there is nothing around us, particularly as I was growing up, there was no Asian American history. Ethnic studies did not exist. That was something that we started when we were in college. So that was back in the 60s and the 70s. So there was this constant sense of kind of defining for ourselves who we are. And talking to friends of mine who are the same age, but were born in Japan, in China, in Korea, asking what it is to be Japanese is a very strange question. It's like, well, of course I'm Japanese. Because they were born and raised in Japan or Korea or China. So the sense of self, we would all mark down Asian American or Japanese American, Korean American, but our experiences are going to be different. There are a lot of things that women as a whole are going to be experiencing. So it's not going to say, oh, well, only Asian women experience this, only white women experience that. I think there's, um, within the Western culture, it's a very youth-oriented culture. In many of the Asian cultures, it's respect for the elder. One of the things that we were seeing for those who were foreign born in particular is the expectation that when they came here, as they got older, they'd be taken care of by their children. Well, guess what? Mom is now in Boston. Her kids are now in New York or in San Francisco or in Florida. 
They're not there to take care of them. That sense of isolation. If you were a foreign-born woman, you also are going to be very vulnerable because oftentimes you're, you're here because of your husband's job or because they're the breadwinner. And so you were the one that was raising the family. So the sense of isolation can be very, very profound. And so the level of depression can be very, very high for elder Asian women. Those of us that were American born, I was very, very fortunate to have a good education because it was denied my parents. But I was able to get one. So as I'm growing older, there's a sense that if something were to happen to my husband, I could survive. But for women that I had worked with when I was doing the clinical work, there was that fear. And again, there were, there were numerous stories and I checked it out with colleagues of mine from different parts of the country where they felt very trapped either in a loveless marriage or in a marriage that was not healthy. And again, this is not just Asian women. When you throw in the factor of not having language, you're very, very vulnerable. And so choice of having to stay with somebody who is abusive because you cannot make it on your own. And again, there are countless women of every color, American-born, foreign-born, English-only, women who are victims of domestic violence are caught in very, very dangerous situations. So it's not as if who suffers more, because I think it's a very, it does no good to say who suffers more. It's a bad situation. But there's another layer to the complexity for the foreign-born women. Again, when you look at the migration and the immigration patterns, for the first generation, they are, and actually in a lot of ways, and we know this to be true, that when you're within your community, there's a very protective factor about being in your own community. So even though you're isolated, if you have a community around you, so you're gonna see the little Tokyos, you're gonna to see the little Saigons, you're gonna see the little Koreas popping up all over the country, the Chinatowns, because, it's a place where you can be normal. You get to be the norm. And that's really, really, really important. What they pass on to the second generation, my mother's generation, which is the first American-born generation, then there's, okay, how, how Asian can I be? Should I be? Do I want to be? For the first generation, it's not a question. You just are. And, and again, there's some isolation, but there's a certain security. So so for your generation, over it's 60 okay. now, yes. what, are the, what are the issues? It depends on how much was passed down to us. So I had to figure out for myself what it was to be an Asian American woman. Because my mother having experienced the war, and even if it wasn't the war, we see this in many, many immigrating communities, that when you're not accepted and the more different you are from the dominant culture, there is a push to cast off that what makes you difference. And for some, there can be this internalized racism. Oh, to be like the dominant culture is much better. And you buy into that. There are others that there's a real ambivalence. Whereas I really want to be Asian. I really want to be Chinese or Japanese or Korean or whatever it is, but it's not safe. And that's some of the things that we're seeing currently with the rise of anti-Asian hate. So what my generation was handed down is what was safe for my mother's generation to pass. And in my mother's case, if you were too Japanese, you lost everything. You were uprooted, you were placed into camps, you were removed, you were brought into and you lived in the Manzanars, you lived in the Tule Lakes. This is my mother's experience. 
And so she was not put into camp, but she was forced away to take care of my parents, my grandparents, when they worked at the, the beet fields of Colorado. So Excuse me, were your parents interred? No, my aunts and uncles were. My my father is was born and raised in Colorado. So he was not forced out of the West Coast. My mother was single at the time. And so she brought her parents, my grandparents, to Colorado because Colorado was the only state in the Western United States that allowed the Japanese to come here without being incarcerated. There is a camp. Granada is in Colorado. It's one of the, the camps. But as long as they worked the beet fields and they worked the fields because the labor force, all the men were now in the military. And for Colorado, they couldn't afford to lose their crops. So the Japanese came and worked the crops, which is my grandparents did, my mother did. She took care of them, but all of her sibs, and in fact, two of my aunts were made on the exact same day, so they would not be separated from their sweethearts. So on that day, they got married, so they'd be sent off to camp together. And so there are all these dynamics that are going on about how safe is it to be. The more Japanese you are, the more you pay for it. But there is also that real sense of this is home. So my 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 mother's first language was Japanese. She's fluent. In, they both of my parents have passed away, but she learned Japanese because her grandparent my grandparents only spoke Japanese, and then they learned English when they started public schools. So for her, there was an emotional home base, and that's ambivalence, not just with Asians, many many immigrating populations, and you've got the Irish. You look at people from Mexico, you look at anybody that's coming in that basically didn't come from the Anglo-Saxon European part of the world. And if they weren't part of what was considered the good countries, then there was that 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 feeling of how safe is it? So you give up, you anglicize your name, you change your name to fit in. So even the face doesn't fit in, you lose your language, you lose. And I remember when I was in graduate school, I had one prop that was talking a lot about acculturation. The first thing to go is the food, the language, those kinds of things. But the things that are the hardest to let go of, and this sort of gets back to your question, it's the cultural values, which I didn't realize how strong it was for me because I learned how to be Japanese, but using English words. And when I went away to college and it was with my white friends, I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood in East Denver. So I grew to a, I grew up in a black neighborhood, went to a school that pulled from the richest and the poorest. My father had the grocery store and the Chicano Latino section of town. I went to the Buddhist temple, which is Japanese. I mean, my best friend, I mean, I just, it was a real mix. But when I went off to college, I suddenly realized that even though I was speaking English, some of my values were different. The way that we would just sort of interact, the way that you would share things. And then I began to look at, oh, these are still very different, but in some ways we are different. And where are women over 60 who are the grandparents now of four generations later? Part of it goes back to how they experienced when they were younger, because that's what we carry on. It doesn't just change when we're 60. And it's, it's a sort of a, a process. And I think because for some of us, we spent so much time talking about identity issues that we found a place that was very comfortable. And so as an older woman, I'm very, very, very comfortable saying I am a woman of color. I am Japanese American, I'm proud of it. There are some of my friends who are very uncomfortable with it because they didn't have the experience or did not find a safe place 
for them as they were growing up in their 20s, their 30s, and 40s to be able to have that experience. Dr. Ida goes on to reference the Mirror Mirror study. 60% of Asian American Pacific Islander women over the age of 50 experience discrimination, at least sometimes. Now, the issue is how safe is it to talk about that? But it's not an uncommon thing that women of my age and older, slightly younger, that discrimination has been a part of our lives. It's very painful to say that somebody attacked me solely based on the fact that I was Asian. Because then that sense of like, oh, there's something wrong with me. And if you're older and you're feeling vulnerable to begin with, and again, particularly if you're foreign born, that sense of I don't belong can be very, very painful. If you acknowledge the fact that culture itself may be playing a part, you don't have to be the expert. But if we don't even know that culture can play a part, you never ask the question and nobody ever thinks about it. It was a long journey because I was raised to be a nice little Japanese girl, to be quiet and to sort of blend in and be like everybody else. Being like everybody else, some of it is a very cultural thing because the Japanese, like most Asians, are group versus individual oriented. So the family comes first. So it was it only fit that as you're growing up. But it took another layer when you're in this country. You are a person of color and you're different. Blending in isn't just to be cultural, which you would do if you were in Japan. But it's a safety. Because the more you stand out, the more you speak. It's not just about not being Japanese anymore. You pay for being different. If you found a place such as the Buddhist temple or the Methodist church in Denver, those are the two the, the two groups there, I know for a fact that that was a real anchor of safety for me. A trained psychologist, Dr. Ida, is more engaged now with public policy than with clinical work, and she strongly believes in public health being culturally competent, as she phrases it, with individual differences acknowledged. If you acknowledge the fact that culture itself may be playing a part, you don't have to be the expert. But if we don't even know that culture can play a part, you never ask the question and nobody ever thinks about it. It's not at all saying when you see a Chinese who say this, because I would like gag the big one. If somebody did, they go, no, don't even do that. Not all women are alike and sure as heck not all Chinese are alike and are all Japanese. But it's what is it to be a woman? How do you define what it is to be a woman? We, we were trained to ask, what is the problem? We never ask, where are your strengths? To be a woman is different. Being a woman of color is different. Being an American-born versus a foreign-born, our dynamics are different. But you just have to ask. There is, however, a debate about the relative values of cultural competence versus cultural humility. In the socio-political climate of the 1960s and 70s, the term cultural competence was coined to define the ability of social justice and healthcare organizations and their attending professionals and paraprofessionals to engage with people from varied cultures. However, Dr. Shamila Khan, the training director of the Center for Multicultural Training and Psychology and the director of the Center for Multicultural Mental Health at Boston University, writes, there are two main problems with the concept of cultural competence. Quote, it suggests that there is categorical knowledge a person could attain about a group of people, which leads to stereotyping and bias, and it denotes that there is an endpoint. Unquote. 
So in the late 1990s, the term cultural humility came into play as a way of understanding the complexities and differences among people of the same culture and of the requirement to understand and work with the evolving and changing nature of a service client's or patient's situation. Dr. Khan offers an assessment of how providers can develop cultural humility, but I think it's a useful blueprint for all of us as we try to navigate our way through a multicultural society in which we live or another culture that we may visit. The key is to be self-aware. Who a person is informs how they see another, Dr. Khan writes. Awareness may stem from self-reflective questions such as, which parts of my identity am I aware of? Which are most salient? Which parts of my identity are privileged and or marginalized? How does my sense of identity shift based on context and settings? What are the parts onto which people project? And which parts are received well and by whom? What might be my own blind spots and biases? With this awareness, a provider can ask questions about how they receive the patient. Who is this person and how do I make sense of them? What knowledge and awareness do I have about their culture? What thoughts and feelings emerge from me about them? About healthcare in particular, Dr. Khan notes that, quote, racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, I'm adding, all of these isms and others are embedded in the world at large and trickle down to national levels, state levels, institutions, and systems of care, and how policies and procedures are established. It's imperative that the healthcare providers are aware of and troubled by, that's Dr. Khan's emphasis, these severe inequalities and inequities. A crucial way to build cultural humility, Dr. Khan continues to write, this is about in a healthcare system, is with representation. A diverse workforce is essential, but it doesn't stop there. Truly multicultural attuned providers understand how these isms are operational within the systems in which they provide services. For this, cultural competence and humility and sensitivity trainings are essential. Close quote. Needless to say, these aren't easy conversations to have, whether in a personal or professional context. In fact, I just had a conversation about Thanksgiving with um, some Arab friends of mine and about what the, they're Arab Americans, they're now American citizens. And I had a somewhat difficult conversation about um, what the holiday means. And it was difficult because it, um, involve the definition of family and then how do we translate that into or transfer it to um, including people you consider to be your family. And there was a completely different cultural perspective on the topic. And so it was very interesting. Of course, we did work it out because we talked about it. And Dr. Khan says it's essential to confront the truths. Quote, everyone has biases. Avoiding or concealing them only escalates the problem. Instead, healthcare institutions and providers need to raise them to the surface and become more comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations to affect change, unquote. 
again, worthwhile advice, not only for institutions, but for all of us as individuals. We absolutely all do share certain characteristics as older women, for example, regardless of our ethnicity. But we don't all share the same outlooks, backgrounds, experiences, or cultures, and we deserve to be socially embraced with sensitivity to our differences, not just because of our age and or gender, but because of all the factors that made us who we are as individuals. Each and every one of us deserves to be heard. Thanks for listening. As usual, I will post resource information on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. Have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.